SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. Seize your destiny, Mr. Torrance. Jack? Coming, sweetheart. Ain't gonna hurt me, Daddy. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies and franchises one film at a time. We're continuing our look at adaptations uh, related to the series of Shining. With the first episode of the 90s miniseries, Stephen King's The Shining, starring uh, Rebecca De Mornay and Stephen Weber and Melvin Van Peebles and Cortland Mead. Uh, I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is Thrasher. I held back at the last minute. And Alex. Hi, I'm Mick Garris. I sound like Jack Nicholson, but I'm also friends with Frank Darabont, and Stephen King likes us both just fine. That's right. So we are looking at this 90s series. In the 90s, I would say it was kind of a heyday for Stephen King miniseries. Not only did you have The Stand, you had It, you had uh, Tommyknockers, you had, it seemed like, uh, he also had a lot of movies and theaters based off Stephen King things like Thinner, and and uh, plus all the direct-to-video uh, Children of the Corn sequels. Oh, no, no, you mispronounced it. It's pronounced Thinner. yeah. <laughs> One of the iconic trailers for whatever reason, even though I don't think a lot of people saw the movie, but that it's like that and I'll never tell will be with us forever. Oh I yeah, that was. And, uh, I saw the movie as well, and um, I think I'll stick with the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I guess we got to talk yeah. about that because because Stephen King uh, was very publicly did not like Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, and he only really came around on it I think as of this recording, just to, like four or five years ago so that was the big deal with this adaptation is it's going to be the shining as stephen king intended it yeah and i don't know if that's what people really wanted but it's what they got and uh in fact uh, this aired on abc and standards and practice was so upset about So their standards, like you cannot show a child in harm or something, that Stephen King threatened to pull it and take it to another network. And um, But I mean, I would say the violence in this thing overall is pretty mild, but we're talking about the first night, which is a lot of uh, exposition. Yeah. And like the, you know, obviously Stephen King's not a fan of Kubrick's uh, Shining. And he was initially like really stoked because Stephen King, like when he found out, was like still kind of like a hippie. And like when he found out like, whoa, the guy from 2001 is going to do my movie like far out. So he was officially stoked and then um, officially very publicly not happy with the results. Um, so, yeah, I guess he just decided to say, like, you know, screw it. If anyone's going to do Stephen King, it's going to be me and my pal Mick Garris. And yet with The the Shining by Kubrick, you know, that was Kubrick's highest grossing film. That was, uh, you know, just a big hit. You still see it inspire different things. Weirdly enough, Steven Spielberg 
kind of did his own version of part of it in uh, Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I love that line where the kid's like, uh, I've never seen The Shining. Is it scary? <laughs> that, that's a movie I'm going to have to watch from beginning to end one day. I always end up finding somebody watching it in the middle, and then I just see the second half. Yeah. Right. Um, so with The Shining, it's one of these things, you know, they make for TV. The violence is sort of muted. And, oh, yeah, with the casting, uh, they were they got a British actor that agreed to do it and then pulled out. It almost shut the whole thing down, but they got Stephen Weber to do it, who is at that point, you know, probably best known for uh, having a big role on the sitcom Wings on the USA Cable Network. Now, was that British actor Tim Curry, and did he prove to be too terrifying for television? No, I wish it would. I, actually, I don't know. Mick Harris has never said, and he's uh, knows his P's and Q's. I don't think he's going to tell stories out of school, but I do wonder who it could have been. And uh, had a British person done the lead, I think we would have had a very different kind of performance. And what Stephen Weber does here, I think, is is pretty good. And this first night is just a lot of exposition and, and kind of backstory. Um, so if you ever want to know, you know, how the heating and cooling elements in the house work in even more detail. Mm-hmm. Everything and, uh, is in the house. It feels almost like you're doing one of those Disneyland rides and it's doing the tour of the mansion or something. Yeah, right. Well, it's, it's guess, funny because, like, because, like, I, I believe our first scene is uh, Dick. Or, no, not Dick. I'm sorry. Is uh, is Jack Torrance in uh, in the boiler room uh, with. Uh, with the groundskeeper uh and, and he's just explaining the boiler oh yeah we know we'll be coming back to this for the movie's climax or for the miniseries yeah, right. climax yes in the beginning you have pat hingle is playing pete watson who's kind of giving him the low down on oh you can't you gotta let the, the the pressure out manually every night and i read went back and read some of the book to, to prep for this and it's really fascinating like it even mentioned stuff like he has these big honking sneezes and his And sure enough, in this performance, Pat Hingle is really doing these big sneezes and but really, I think, does a good job of looking like a, someone that would really have this kind of position. He just seems like a real kind of salt of the earth, kind of blue collar guy. Well, he like he, he's also he, he, I feel like this character could have stepped right out of a Coen Brothers movie. I know, right? Sure. Also, yeah. I guess a couple of the actors considered for Jack Torrance were uh, Tim Daly and Gary Sinise. I think Gary Sinise would have been pretty good. Makes sense. Gary Sinise was the lead on The Stand, which was the other yeah. big thing uh, McCarris did before this. That was a Stephen King miniseries. It's, uh, it's interesting, too, because um, I like – it's interesting. So the Stanley Hotel is the inspiration, and that's where the miniseries was filmed. There's like a, I know there's like story ghost stories and haunting uh, accounts and everything, but like it's just not it doesn't look scary at all. You know, there's nothing really like haunting or gothic about it. It looks like your very average kind of like Colorado, you know, uh, hotel. Although I will say it also looks like the kind of place that would have the sort of reputation that would make people with too much money want to stay there. Totally. Oh, without a doubt. Just for the prestige. Oh, yes. Well, we summered in the Overlook. Yes. Exactly. I mean, oh, if, has... I, if, if I may say something, so El- Elliot Gould appears briefly as just the the asshole hotel manager Stuart Ullman. 
and he plays it almost like uh like Herman Munster. Did you all get that vibe <laughs> off of him? Yes. A bit. I mean, you, you also have the lenses, I think, seem to exaggerate his his height and, and the way he is. I mean, looking at his face, he would make a good Herman Munster. And speaking of which, uh, Rob Zombie is directing a Munster's film. That is a franchise that will not die. No, it will not. Anyone else see that kind of pilot uh, with Eddie Izzard? Oh, the that Mockingbird a, Lane. Yeah, that was odd. I- no, but I've heard I've heard it's pretty good as far as things go. Actually, it's funny enough there there was a I don't recall the the name of the guest, but there was a, a, a recent ish episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with this like comedy producer writer and producer. He's like worked on Mork and Mindy and things like that, and he was involved in the early two thousands with a Monsters revival that was going to be the that was just going to be like an origin story for the family. It was just going to be, oh, yeah, it's about them getting driven out of Transylvania by a torch-bearing mob and coming to America and gaining their citizenship. Oh, and he wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger as a, a, the father, as I think. Uh, as Herman, yeah. Um, oh, I, I couldn't imagine him as Grandpa Monster. <laughs> right, no, the, the guest in that was Brian Levant, or Levant, who did uh, the Flintstones movies we talked about a while oh, ago. that's right, yeah. You know, you, you, know you want his grandpa, John Lovitz. Yes, I, I could see that. Now. He's aged into the role. <laughs> yep. But The Shining, hey. Right, oh, yeah, The Shining. It, I, know, I feel like this is like the uh, like the quiz for the book. It's like, did you read the book? You know, it's like every line's like, no, 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 like in the book. No, 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 like in yeah, the book. Well, weirdly enough, though, I mean, the way the book opens is the same as the Kubrick movie, not this one, in which is the discussion between Jack Torrance and, and the asshole... Um, Stuart Allman, who is saying, like, you know, I'm really not comfortable, man. You're you're an alcoholic. Why should we give this to you? You really haven't been employed for a while. Yeah, I don't really care for your type, Mr. Torrance. Yeah, he, the he's board very, has uh, chosen to hire you over my He's described as an officious. Right. And that monologue goes on for a while. I mean, you get the point pretty quickly. Um and I mean, so what do we think about this stuff in, in the beginning? It takes its time before you get to the house. I think it's at least 30 minutes, or it feels like it anyway. It, and, takes, and you a, get, it takes a while, yeah. And then you get to see Jack Torrance uh, as a as a teacher who, who lost his job for beating the shit out of a student. But you also see him in an incident where he uh, uh, you know, pulls on his son's arm too hard and, and breaks it. Yeah, all things considered, I, that, uh, that little shit had it coming. Not the son, the, the kid who slashed his tires, so. though. I mean, you know, maybe I wouldn't have pummeled him so hard, but, you know, a couple of socks here and there. You could just say he fell, keep your job, everything's good. But, you know, yeah, that's that, that, that was a shocking amount of violence for ninety for late 90s television. Yeah, uh, he just really see, wails on him. Yeah, and, and admittedly, you only actually see the initial punch land when he beats the kid, he's punching off camera, but there's this really satisfying sound of like one stake slapping into another. <laughs> uh, like it really does communicate this moment of horrific violence to the point where like, if we pulled back, I feel like that boy's face would have been destroyed. Yeah, definitely. This is, I think shaping a very much, a much more sympathetic Jack Torrance. Cause 
Mm-hmm. Again, another complaint about the uh, Kubrick Shining was that, you know, it, it, everyone always says Jack Nicholson plays him like he just goes insane instantly. And this, uh, you know, is definitely a guy struggling with some demons, with his alcoholism. Um, well, and I, again, I think- like, you can understand why he, he, he totally just like, you know, wail on that kid for slashing his tires. And you're like, hey, maybe like I said, maybe you can get away with like, you know, a couple of punches. But, you know, he really, he really, really wails on him. Well, on the, on the one hand, yeah, the extra stuff with his alcoholism and his emotional struggles, that does indeed make him more sympathetic. But he also, because of particularly the scene where he beats up that student, he registers as a much more of a physical threat in, in the first half than in, in this first installment than Jack Nicholson does at the beginning of uh, the, the Kubrick adaptation. So, so there, there, there is a part of me that is much more acutely concerned about the safety of Danny and Wendy because we have seen this example of his capacity for violence. Yeah, and also, too, like, I guess, you know, and it's naturally going to invite comparisons to the Kubrick film. Um, this Jack Torrance, too, like, you can tell there's much more at stake, and he plays it like that. Like, Nicholson's Jack Torrance just kind of acts like he doesn't want to be wherever he is. Like, he, like, through the interviews, he's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. Like, God, you can tell he doesn't really... Yeah, he feels like he, don't really, he doesn't really give a shit if he gets the job or not, you know? Whereas this one, like, you know, he plays him like he has shit at stake, you know? Definitely. I mean, the way he kind of is, is pleading for the job and how much he, he needs it, like you do feel sympathy for him there. And um, and then what the actress they have is, is playing the wife, Rebecca de Mornay, I, I would say it's quite different from uh, Shelley Duvall in, in the Kubrick film. Well, you know what's so funny is like is so so being somebody who who was alive uh, 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 in the 80s and 90s, Shelley Duvall really does encapsulate a very specific kind of 80s mom, and Rebecca de Mornay encapsulates a very specific kind of 90s mom. Very well said. <laughs> it's uh, they're so they're very very different uh, actors and performers and uh, and just overall styles to the to the Wendy character. And I do like that we get a bit more of like 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 right off the bat they just front load that Wendy has, if not artistic aspirations, then like artistic talent. Like I just love her laying down the charcoal on that sketch that sketch of the bowl of fruit. It's there's just some there's just something just very very endearing about that. Yeah, and that she she loves him, but also realizes he's kind of a. a her husband's a bit of a not quite a firecracker, but you know, it just has a lot of pent up rage and uh, is still trying to kind of find his way in, into being sober and, and getting used to that big change in the lifestyle. Well, you know what else though is that is that we it is established that she, very early on that she does not trust him. There's that whole moment where like she sees the bottle of like fancy iced tea in his office. And she immediately opens the bottle, smells it, and tastes it to make sure that he hasn't hidden alcohol in it. And she really communicates that relief on her face when she realizes it mm-hmm. is just iced tea. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm going to just put it now. At least in this first episode, Rebecca De Mornay, I think she is doing the most nuanced performance in this adaptation. Yeah, and in terms of performances, I think. Um... I mean, we have uh, Cortland Mead is. Go on. Oh, I think the thing with Steven Weber is that I don't think he, the thing with this performance is that I feel like 
he's bringing a lot of conflict to the Jack Torrance character. And I think what it does is that it tightens up his performance and it doesn't come across as very natural, which makes it look like bad acting. I don't think it's bad acting. I think he's mm-hmm. just playing a character who's very conflicted and very is very much a wound up person. But it comes across as a little wooden and a little uh, a little clunky. Um, I don't think that's bad acting. I think it's just overemphasis on underlying emotion instead of outward emotion. I, I think I think you're right about him, you know, playing a man who's very tightly wound. But I but it it hurts it when that tight that tightly wound performance is unfortunately maintained when it doesn't need to be. There's there's two kind of two kind of horrific like audio flashbacks to when uh, when Jack uh, broke Danny's arm, and even when Jack Torrance, we hear Jack Torrance, he's supposed to be flying off the handle right before he injures his own his own son, and even when he's flying off the handle, it comes off as somebody tightly wound rather than somebody who is tightly wound unwinding all at once. Like I don't know if you've been yelled at by like like really yelled at by a parent who flies off in a rage. <laughs> it does not sound like this. This is so no. toned down. And I realized you're not going to get much swearing on network television in this era, but that the worst thing he says is you little pup. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. it's, it's, it's like, it's like Ward Cleaver <laughs> is, is flying off the handle. That's what he would say. Not well, only that, but that like they, they, they have the line he, and we'll see it later in the other episodes as we talk about in the coming weeks. <clears throat> Saying like, oh, you're gonna get your medicine. Like that's the best you got, really. That sounds yeah, pretty. That's kind of weak. And the thing is, you, uh, lame you and could make that work with the right emphasis, with with the right sort of tonality. And if you just sort of broke it up, if it was just take your medicine, just three hard words mm-hmm. that have that have a certain rhythm. Take your medicine, like that. That would that would. Forgive the expression, but that would really hit hard. That would have a real impact. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's it you can feel it holding back, and I think that's the weird thing. At least this first episode, there are moments when it holds back when it absolutely shouldn't, and there are moments when it didn't hold back that absolutely shocked me. Like when uh, when when he's getting the story about the woman who committed suicide, even though you don't see very much. That's still a shocking scene. Like they show, they show a lot, and you really like are feel scared for that that woman. It's it's it, it is so strange. Yeah, and I think it's also like it's a little tonal misfire, like the like the take your medicine thing, because it's like delivered in almost like that sing songy way, like come on and take your medicine. You know what I mean? It's not. It doesn't sound very imposing. It sounds very uh, made for TV. <laughs> Well, and you look at other things Stephen Weber has done, and he's very charismatic. He is a guy that smiles a lot. I think this role might have been a bit much for him at this time in his career. And and I I listened to him on some podcast recently, and he said if he could do it again, he would want to go and especially make it when he uh, becomes, you know, kind of goes whole hog in the house. He would have made that more less over the top and more subtle. 
Well, you know, I can respect it because this is definitely the part of his career where he wants to do a dramatic turn. And I think this is a, a good vehicle for that. And I'm not sure how much and, and like his performance, I am not sure how much of that we can lay on him and how much of it we can lay on the director. Right. Um, so what do you think about the kid in this, Cortland Mead? He's, he doesn't act anymore, but he was in things like uh, Hellraiser 4. He had a brief part and he has these really creepy eyes. Yeah, he he has a really in, really interesting career. Yeah, he's in Hellraiser Bloodline. He's briefly he has a cameo in A Bug's Life. He was in Dragon World, which is a pretty good direct to video movie by uh, Blue Moon Entertainment. Um, but he, he, you know, overall overall I like him. I keep I keep getting him confused with young Anakin Skywalker from The Force Awakens, but actually in a good way. He does seem like a a real precocious kid trying to navigate this uh, this family environment. And when he has his sort of seizures and he's repeating things that he's like heard from from, I guess, presumably ghosts or memory impressions on the place. There's a certain like rawness to it uh, that I really do uh, appreciate. He's all right. It's just you know what happens, and I think it's prob. I think it's one of the reasons why people were so hard on Shelley Duvall, is because for a child actor, it's a pretty demanding role. You have to do a lot of yes. shit. You have to do a lot of like hyperventilating and crying and running around and reacting to things and reacting to things that aren't there or maybe things that are there but aren't there. Wink, wink. Um, and I think uh, this is going to sound very petty of me, but it's that damn haircut <laughs> that kills me. That haircut well, that was... not do, it's not doing anyone any favors, but it was very popular at that time. So. Yes, I, I had that haircut. I mean, the 90s, you had kind of not quite a mop top. I don't know what it was. Like you had. It's like a bowl cut, I guess. I don't know. Yes. That's a bowl cut. The parted. Hey, boy, I think maybe might be the official term. Yes. And um, I, I think a, a mistake this makes, I think that makes it less creepy uh than the original is you would have uh you know the kid doing red rum and he's talking to his friend but you don't see him but here you literally see uh his his friend tony yeah, this okay yeah. this is a mistake i am yeah. i am yeah. not i am not opposed to him being able to see tony and i think there are lots of ways where tony being visually present in a scene could be very effective the mistake they make is that it's way too supernatural. Like when Tony shows up, Danny should be alone and Tony should sort of like walk in and be physically present, but it should make you wonder, well, wait, is this guy real or is this just in Danny's head? Mm. But whenever he shows up, there's this horrible floating oh. effect. Yeah. If yeah, they it's... just had him standing, those scenes would be 80% better. Yeah. The presentation of Tony sucks. Um, it really does kind of like take your breath away in a bad way. You're like, oh boy, wow, here we go. Uh, this is what we're dealing with here, people. Floating Tony. And I kept <laughs> laughing because he kind of reminded me of like a young Matthew Modine. I could see that, yeah. So one thing about uh, Cortland Mead's performance as Danny Torrance, and this is not at the feet of Cortland Mead, is that, and, and admittedly, this is something that normally I have no problem with, but it but it really hurts this particular film. So, you know, this is an adaptation by Stephen King. And as a, as a result, a lot of the character dialogue is very, I'm just going to say writerly, where mm -hmm. it's not 
really the way people talk, but it's a great dramatic way to have people talk that looks really good on a page, even if it can come off as a bit unnatural uh, on film. And when the adults speak with this writerly dialogue, I find that it just kind of heightens the movie, uh, the miniseries a bit in a way I like, except when Danny speaks in writerly dialogue. It makes him seem completely like not a kid, but like a puppet being operated by an adult. Like there are so many moments when like Danny is confronted with something or asked a question and he should just be answering yes or no, like kind of a put upon kid would. But instead, it's always like, no, I would prefer not. (laughs) Which is not what a kid, even a precocious kid under pressure says. Yeah, it's... um... He has one. Yeah, I feel like he's kind of like atonal, and that it's always like it's kind of like he's it's it's like weird expository, but like with that like over it's like the like over emphasized like sense of naivete. You know, like it's like you can tell he's playing up like the childish factor of Danny. But mm. it does contrast really well with when he's having his seizures, though, and he's just like. Mm. Get me the axe! Like, it really does contrast with that nicely. So, after it it takes... And among the the people we meet there are Melvin Van Peebles plays Dick Halloran. And I have to say, that's pretty cool casting. Oh, without a doubt. He is awesome. I wish he was in more things. Uh, the the uh, you know the the was he the writer, director, and star of Sweet Sweetback's badass song, Father of Mario Van Peebles, who we talked about in I believe Highlander Three. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, like he's great. You know, like he he plays it because we we talked about like Scatman Carruthers, like his his version of this character of Dick Halloran clearly has kind of a rich inner life and a rich life of his own when he's not working at the hotel. And Melvin Van Peebles, the way he plays it, it's like a guy who used to be the coolest guy in the world. Yes. But now he's nearing retirement age and like he knows he's he knows that, you know, he can't swing it like he used to. But he's still trying to hang on to that that old world cool. Like I said, old that old fashioned cool. Like, you know, he's talking about his his gorgeous Cadillac that like one of the first ones off the assembly line and just the way he wants to project swagger. But, you know, physically he might not you know be up to it. I love his performance as Dick Halloran. Yeah, I do too. I think it's probably some of the best. Um, I think it's some of the best casting and acting in the movie. Honestly, he's so casually cool. You can tell that this Dick Halloran, like, if you're at a party or a dinner, he is the center of attention, and he's not trying to be. That's just that's just him. And, he's telling um, the best stories, telling the best jokes. He's like, oh yeah, he's 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 flirting with people who are twenty years older than him and twenty years younger than him, and being just as successful across the exactly. board. Exactly, not without even trying. And I actually had the good fortune to meet Melvin Van Feebles a few years ago at the oh. Museum of Modern Art for a screening of um, of Sweet Seatback's Badass Song. And what a cool guy. And he was hilarious, though, because I had him autograph a copy of uh, the documentary How to Enjoy Your Watermelon and White Company and Enjoy It. And he just <laughs> – it's got a picture of him on the cover, and he just writes – yeah, me, underneath the picture of himself. <laughs> and he got kind of confused because someone else handed him something to sign, and he just kept it, so I just kind of, like, awkwardly hovered for a second. And he's like, what? He's like, I take care of you? I'm like, oh, you did. I just 
I just need my movie back. Like, Melvin, give him back his movie. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, man. Here you go. So, yeah, like, <laughs> was easiest, easiest to go get along guy. But, yeah, a total player and um, and a very cantankerous, funny, interesting dude. I'm, I, I love seeing him on screen in this thing. Right. I mean, according to the, the commentary, Stephen King did not like Melvin Van Peebles' outfit. And thought it looked what? made him made him look like a pimp or something, maybe because of the colors. But Melvin yeah. Peebles picked out the outfit himself. Well, also, it has like a sharp cut. But the yeah. man's leaving to go on an extended vacation. Exactly. That is totally yeah. what he's going to wear. That's right, in Florida he, of all places, right? Well, that'd be very hot in Florida. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, but this is for the plane ride. You know, he's in the mountains right now. Where it, it's chilly. It, he has looked styling. That, that's right. That's right. That's true. Yeah, going to the airport, you got to look back when people dressed up in suits to go on an airplane. Um, but yeah, and, uh, when doing the, the big monologues in, in the parking lot, kind of talking about the shining and the cars kind of, expl- the windows, the lights in the car explode and stuff, Bellevue Peebles was having trouble memorizing his lines. So uh, they had to put his lines on cardstock and have an assistant hold it. And so if you watch it, when he does his lines, he'll do these like, They work as dramatic pauses, but it's really just him looking for where the next uh, card with his lines is. Well, you it's kind of like when uh, people talk about Spencer Tracy doing the looking down thing. He's like, no, I was just trying to hit my mark. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's it's funny because you, you mentioned those like pauses and it kind of works for me because like, you know, we get a lot more of him communicating uh, talking to Danny, both verbally and telepathically in this in this first part. So kind of works as him pausing to think, well, should I say this out loud or should I just shine it to him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I do think that when this scene works and it's, it's a practical effect of, uh, you know, okay, kid, hit me with all you got. And he gets the nosebleed and the, the stuff starts exploding in the parking lot. I think that's a pretty decent scene. No, well, it's a great, and it's just like a great practical effect. Like it's one of those effects yeah. with, well, holy shit! How did they not both get shards of glass in their eye? Yeah. <laughs> but the other, the other thing I, I like, uh, I really like about uh, Melvin's performance is that you know everyone, like most most of the characters are kind of sort of like stiff and and reserved. But from where they're coming from emotionally, I think that that makes uh, a lot of sense. We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks we do linguistic analysis. So the Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine. But so the changed meaning in Japanese, it means to temper. Other times we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Oh, you can find out more about the spirit hunters right here on the greenlit podcast network fans of video games history or video game history will definitely want to listen to retronauts each week bob Mackey and myself that's jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today check us out every monday on the greenlit podcast network but with with Melvin Van Peebles, he he's much more physical. He's much more operating in three dimensions. He's always reaching outside of himself. There's just that great moment when he's like, you know, you've got the shine. I can feel it coming off of you like heat. And he does this like move with his hand to mm. just kind of put some emphasis on that line reading. And he's always doing stuff like that. And it just it mm. it it gives that character so much energy. It just makes him instantly likable in a way that the other characters aren't, most of the other characters are not. And I think too, like, um, 
to contrast the Scatman Crothers, like there's a uh, much more warmth to his character. You can see why Danny would kind of glom on to him as a kid. Cause he's very like, yeah. Hey Danny, I'll show you this or Hey Danny, I'll show you that. And it's like, yeah, I'd tag along with him. This guy's awesome. Um, and also too, what I like is that you can tell like, you know, everyone else is like, all right, we're done with this place for the season. Let's go. You can tell that Melvin Van Peebles is like, ah, he does not feel good about this. Like deep down, like he's going to go on vacation to go about his life, but you can tell that deep down he's not stoked that he's got a bad feeling and he doesn't verbalize it, but he definitely communicates it on screen. I think it's uh, just a part of uh, Melvin Van Peebles very good performance. Well, I just love it when he's like, don't, don't go into that room. What room? Never mind. Just don't go into any of those rooms. I love that. And I mean, we have, as this first night kind of episode sort of wraps up, you have this really dumb scene where it's like they put a wasp nest in his in the kid's room. Well, well, we get well. There's like it's mentioned early on that there's like a roof might need to be patched. So like one of the first big chores Jack does is that he's putting new shingles on the roof in a very yeah. unsafe way. I might add. Also, <laughs> when you re-shingle, you don't punch a hole through the roof. You just peel the shingles off. But I guess for in order for that scene to work, you do have to punch a hole through the roof. But well, well, maybe. Maybe there's an underlying structural issue, but yeah, but like he's right. doing there, and there's this huge wasp nest in there, and 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 he's getting like stung, and he's getting like stung by the wasps, and it, and I and I do I feel for him in that moment. Like I I went through something similar while helping my dad clear a tree from a backyard. There was this massive termite mound, like mm. in the core of the tree trunk, and we just got swarmed by massive termites. But it, oh, so yeah, sucks. it's terrifying. But um. But yeah, like he, you know, he he gets out insecticide. And he 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 sprays the hell out of the nest. Uh, you know, lets lets Danny keep it. But then at night they they come out, and it's pretty terrifying seeing these bugs swarming all over Danny. But there's this really disturbing scene when he's trying to when he's getting ready to when he's getting rid of the 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 wasp nest where he puts it outside to freeze and there's like the one hornet on his arms like why don't you sting me now huh why don't you sting me now. Yeah, I like, like that. It, it emphasizes, too, that, like, you know, this is, again, kind of an unstable dude, you know? Like, it just, that is such a, just a dark moment where he seems to want the wasp to sting him. It's, it is very disturbing. And that they, they put it in the kid's room. I mean, I, I can see a kid looking at a wasp mess and being like, that's really cool looking. Well, admittedly, they do think that the wasps are all dead, although I guess you would want to, like, because I actually, I, I, I had a friend who collected wasp nests. Like, you don't just grab it after you spray it down. Like, you mm. normally would put it in a container just to make sure that they all starve to death over however mm-hmm. long that's going to take. So, yeah, it, it is kind of careless, although I do love it Like when he comes back. It's like, hey, Dad, Mom got me a model of a funny car. She's going to help put it together. That's such a great little bit of Americana. I can't help but be charmed by it. Yeah. And, I mean, when the kid freaks out and is screaming and his uh in the room i think he's really convincing at that and anytime he does the when he's having the shine come on and he rolls the eyes in the back of his head and he starts shaking like he's having a seizure i think moments like that works it's just all the other time like he's so he looks like a cutesy he acts like a cutesy poo kid in commercials for oatmeal or something it's (laughs) like i don't know it's not it's not as like a a performance. I mean, I guess you could compare it to like Jack Nicholson in the first one, where like the kid is always creepy. 
one. Yeah, he just and this one, he does seem more network. like a normal kid. Well, something that I, I really appreciate around this time is when, you know, when when Wendy and Jack are talking to Danny uh, and, and he's you know, on the toilet, he's just recovered from his seizure. And he was like, and Jack's like, look, there's no, there's, there's no, there's no Tony. There's no monsters. There's just, there, you need to calm down. And he shakes him and he hits his head on the toilet. And Danny just lets out this. He just starts bawling. Yeah. That. That is exact. That is exactly like when a kid that age is sudden suddenly hurt, even when it's like a minor, like like a minor thing, like a skin knee. Like right. that. That is so real. It's like that's either he's suddenly the best child actor in the world, or he accidentally did get injured on the set and they kept the take. There's that little that's, like moment of recognition. Then come the waterworks, you know. Yeah, it's yes. like a moment where the brain has to process that you're in pain, and then you just the waterworks start. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I think so. This this first night overall, it does set stuff up. You do learn about the house. You do uh, get some stuff set up, but it, it it's easing you in to uh, to the shining. And, and it does hint at the hints at the bathtub lady and the spooky fire hose too. And that fire hose effect. That's well, yeah, I mean, yeah, so, at at the time in the in the mid to late nineties, but even into the early two thousands, CG was really expensive to do. It didn't look that good. Or if they did it, it um, you know, the lighting on it you couldn't get quite right. It would just off everything would just look a bit loose. Well, it's I mean, you you can tell they're a bit enamored with with the technology because yeah, if, if if you haven't seen this, uh, it like there's this there's this old fire old timey fire hose on one of the higher floors and 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 uh, Danny has a vision where the fire hose like comes to life and like the moment it comes to life, it just turns into the worst shiny, overly smooth '90s TV CGI and it grows these unconvincing metal teeth and just kind of snaps at the screen. And it's it's one of those things where there are moments when they try to do a high tech scare in this movie and it always <laughs> fails. But I was almost always disturbed by the low tech scares. Like there's multiple yes. moments where like we see just a door close on its own after the camera lingers on it a little bit. And it is annoying, even though I know it's just a PA behind the door giving it a little nudge. Right. Uh, and, and like, and that bit where like all the appliances in the lobby turn on in the middle of the night, there is something actually very disturbing about the way that shot, even though it is just light switches being flipped on off camera. And likewise, there's this, um, and, and, and I'm shocked this didn't come back because there's a shot of the dining hall where all the chairs all at once slow that are stacked up on the table slowly slide off. Mm. And all that is, is you're just sort of pushing up on a little thing to help to, you know, under the table to make a move. It's just so low tech. It's uh, but but like it, it, you can clearly tell how it how it works because you can see the indentation in the tablecloth. But it's but it's disturbing just the way they all fall off all at once. And I'm honestly like shocked. So was that only in someone's head or did that actually happen? Because you would think if you're the caretaker and you're doing your rounds and you see, huh, all the chairs are tossed on the floor. That's a lot of work. You'd feel like there'd be a scene where they have to put that room back in order. 
Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that, like, what you said, where they go for the high-tech scares, that could have very easily have been a practical effect. Like, I feel like when they do do the high-tech scares, like, that could have just been, like, a puppet or, you know what I mean? Like, mm. something no, that's not been, bad. It, it would have been better if they had just had Danny wrapped up in the hose and pulled it off of him and just reversed the film. Yeah, exactly. Or even just, like, you know do a close-up of someone, like, you know, with, like, a puppet teeth or something like that, like, cha-cha, you know what I mean? Or, like, with, um, well, I guess it's a later episode, so I won't get into it now, but I feel like when they go for the high-tech scares, I'm like, okay, you had an alternative, and that would have been so much better than... Well, well don't than tell me seeing. now, but they make such a meal out of all the animal topiaries in the front lawn of the hotel. I yep. am sure we're going to see those come to life in 90s CGI. Just you wait. We shall but, see. Okay. Yeah, overall, this first night, I think it, it it's good, and I think it has, you know, the most... When Stephen King says, oh, I wish the, the Kubrick film would have been more like the book, I think this is kind of the material he's talking about, more of the setting the table of what happens, uh, more of kind of the warmth between the family. It's... Um, I would give it... Uh, Sequel, yes, I guess. You know, it's, but maybe like not read the book at the same time you're watching <laughs> this because it can be yeah. a bit of a repetitive experience. It's kind of a, in some ways, a pretty literal adaptation of it. And uh, you have to keep in mind this is in the 90s and the special effects are, because I, I was talking to someone about this uh, online and, and they were saying, like, oh, like I never knew this existed, and he watched a commercial. He's like, "Oh, they're making the effects bad on purpose." And it's like, "No, that's just how stuff looked on television back then." <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. Unless you were maybe Star Trek: Next Generation or something, the the effects right. were not very good. Um, the, and that was just the limitation of the technology. Uh, Thrasher, what do you think? This this does have some failings, but overall. I have enjoyed it. I probably would have enjoyed it if I'd seen it when it first when it first came out. Uh, this is mostly table setting, but it's table setting I can appreciate, and I look forward to seeing it uh, pay off in episodes two and three. And I really hope they pay off in episodes two and three. And I just got to give more credit to, to Pat Hingle. He is so great as this, like, old-timey Texan handyman. <laughs> <laughs> and just do all peppering all his dialogue with a gear and goddamn tea <laughs> and just his gallows humor into the matter of fact way you know he did brain surgery with both barrels <laughs> it's he he's almost at odds with the movie he's in but i still i really appreciate that i gotta give lots of props to like pat hingle i i want a buddy comedy where it's pat hingle and melvin van peebles as these characters it's like going on vacation together <laughs> and solving a mystery of some sort Right. I mean, the way Pat Hingle plays him, it's almost like it's like the you're working retail and a guy comes in and he can't buy a pack of smokes without going into a crazy 10 minute story about his aunt. <laughs> <laughs> and I always forget that he played Commissioner Gordon in uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Not just in Tim Burton's oh, Batman, yeah. all four of those uh, all 90s right. Batman. Gordon. Not that he ever had that much to do. I mean, especially compared to like those Batman, the uh, Nolan Batman films that had such a big thing going on. But yeah. Um, so uh, Alex, what do you think of this first night of the shiny? First night. 
Um, yeah, SQL, yes. It's one of those things where, like you were saying earlier, Matt, if you're adjacent to the book, it's a little redundant. Because, I mean, even things that aren't, like if they omit something, they'll reference in the series that they're omitting it. Um, so that can be a little repetitive. But um, I, I, it's one of those cases where, for what it is, it's pretty darn good. Um, and I know that sounds maybe sounds a little bit reductive, but for, you know, for a TV series in the mid to late 90s, this is pretty solid stuff. You know, it's it's got a couple um, got a couple of greasy spots and um, a few missteps. But for all intents and purposes, it's a it's a engaging and entertaining experience. I just had a thought. I was thinking of British actors. What do you think someone like Hugh Grant would have been like in this? That might oh, have been disturbing. I think his accent would have been the the focal point. Mm. <laughs> his well, bad American accent. Oh, if they would have had him try to do an American accent. That's yeah. Like, darn it, Tony, I haven't had a drop. Right, either that or they make it too flat or they have to go into Southern because that's the easiest one to do. Take your medicine, pup. Yeah. <laughs> now go enjoy some Vegemite. I have to enjoy, I have to meet some chappies for an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. <laughs> all the vowels, yeah. Uh, all right. So, um, I don't really want to do pitch a sequel. Uh, yeah, it doesn't really work for an episode of a miniseries. Maybe we'll do yeah, it at the end of the miniseries. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, it, it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But going on to what you're watching, um, I saw something that a lot of people don't know exists and maybe you'll cover it on the show someday but it is a uh it's trying to be like a ricky gervais kind of thing it's called i want to make sure i have the the name right hold on oh hold uh it's called the very excellent mr dundee Oh yes, <laughs> with, with with Paul. This just popped up uh, in the states on uh, Tubi uh, for free um, with commercials, and uh, this is. I, I think you can technically call it a Crocodile Dundee movie because that, but it is sort of like, what if a rookie Gervais kind of comedy like Extras was done, but as a feature about Paul Hogan, and. Oh. It has John Cleese, uh, even though on the poster it has John Cleese and Chevy Chase, they're only in it for maybe one or two scenes apiece. Um, it feels very kind of cheap, and this was supposed to have a wide release in theaters, and then uh, I think uh, in the States or something, and then like COVID happened. Um, and I mean, this is just not great. And to give you an example of the kind of joke in it, he... He uh, takes a pitch meeting, and they want to do a Crocodile Dundee movie about, oh, his uh, his son, and his son is going to be played by Will Smith. Oh, okay, well, what's the problem? And the problem, the joke is that, the problem with that is that uh, he would, his son is black. And they're like, oh, are you concerned that Will Smith is too old? No, no, it's not that. Oh, oh is it that he's uh, too famous? No, no, not that at all. He's a brilliant actor. And it's, it stretches that for like five minutes with goofy sitcom music, if you can imagine. <laughs> um, has some good cameos by like, you know, Reginald Ville Johnson, uh, Olivia Newton-John uh, and, and stuff. Wayne Knight is in it. Um, 
but it it feels like you know if this was a tv series maybe this would have been okay but it just as a movie it just seems a little bit toothless Anyone else ever heard of this? Or I've I've heard wow. of it and I've been meaning to see it. And it's funny you mentioned you know John Cleese and uh, Chevy Chase being on the cover. And I remember when I saw that cover, I'm like, oh, I bet they got cameos. <laughs> yeah, not just that, but there's other scenes that reference them where you don't see them on screen, but they say like, oh, there's Chevy Chase, and you hear some like sound effects, like they were suspiciously prominently featured. <laughs> yeah, what's really crazy in my research, what I found out is uh, in <laughs> 2019, there is a, or no, in 2017, there is a, a two-part miniseries based on the life of Paul Hogan entitled Hogue's The Paul Hogan Story. And the actor that plays Paul Hogan is Josh Lawson, who we recently talked about as Kano in the Mortal Kombat film. Okay. Interesting. Who looks nothing like Paul Hogan at all. But, oh, yeah. um, but there you go. It's, so yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Uh, I did like the credit sequence that kind of explains Paul Hogan's whole career, which gave some good context, because he did stuff other than Crocodile Dundee and had like a show that he wrote and starred in that was a huge hit. But he actually got a start as a construction worker that got on a got on a game show where he just went on and criticized the judges. <laughs> And that was such a kind of hit. They kind of brought him back a few times and he got a development deal. And then there you go. But yeah. He uh, directed by Dean Murphy. Um, Alex, what have you been watching? Um, I recently watched, this has been on my watch list for uh, a million years and it wasn't really available for a long time until Shout Factory uh, recently put it out. And as I'm sure you guys know, big fan of, uh, you know, Hong Kong chop sake films and Kung Fu movies, and also a big fan of Hammer films. And for one magical year in 1974, um, Hammer Studios and Shaw Brothers did a couple of co-productions. One of them is a legendarily uh, awesome uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, or you have Kung Fu Vampires, and it's amazing. <laughs> yes. And they did another one called Mr. Shatter. And this was our, it's released as Shatter. And it's their attempt at doing kind of like a globe-hopping Bo James Bond, East meets West uh, spy thriller. And um, I can see why it wasn't available for very long, because it's kind of stupid. Um, Mr. Shatter is played by Stuart Whitman, and they give him James Bondy stuff. You know, he, he shoots like a camera gun, and, you know, he knows martial arts, and he can bed women and stuff. But he is not a very uh, charismatic or charming actor, or let alone doesn't really sell the physicality of it. And it's I wrote, the funniest thing, too, is that it's got T. Long, who's a huge um, Hong Kong star. He's been in a jillion things. Peter Cushing has a supporting role in it, um, a very supporting role. Anton Differing's in it as well. And it doesn't really do either, though. It's never really like a Shaw Brothers kung fu movie, and it's never really like a British Bond knockoff. It's just kind of this awkward hybrid that's just kind of like, uh, clumsily jumps around it's got some camp appeal but it's just uh it just doesn't really work altogether which is too bad because i think hammer studios and shaw brothers are two colossally uh awesome uh you know houses for cranking out cool genre movies and the, the tagline's great check this out mr shatter isn't crush proof but cross him and he'll put you in a box like what what is that <laughs> it's pretty good 
Someone stayed up all night on that one. Um, uh, again, for camp appeal and just for like, wow, they made this. It, it's a it's a fun thing to watch, and, uh, and I'm glad I owed it. And I will probably rewatch it because I'm just a bit of a hammer and Shaw Brothers not. But there's a lot that could have happened they didn't uh, capitalize on. So I, I narrowly recommend checking out Shatter. I would put it in the uh, for fans only category, though, if you're a hammer and or Shaw Brothers fan. I see. Um, all right. So Thrasher, what have you been watching? So uh, I did see the Suicide Squad, which is different from Suicide Squad. Ah, but yes. Since one is a sequel to the other, I'll let you guess which. I figure we're going to cover it eventually, so I don't want to mm-hmm. talk about that too much. But I do want to talk about something I saw that not a lot of people know about. Maybe you've heard of this. I watched the complete series of Morton and Hayes. Have you all heard of this show? I have not. No. Okay, it's very relevant to the sequel cast. So it was a one-season television obscurity from uh, 1991 starring Rob Reiner as himself, Kevin Pollock as Chick Morton, Bob Amaral as Eddie Hayes, Christopher Guest plays multiple parts, Courtney Cox appears in it, uh, uh, Hamilton Camp appears in it, uh, Chris, uh, uh, Michael McKeon a- appears in it. Uh this the premise of this show is that there were a pair of vaudeville comedians named Morton and Hayes who became famous in the 40s and 50s and did a whole bunch of like did a whole bunch of movies but then lost popularity and like their film their films got lost and Rob Reiner who grew up watching these films and who was a fan of them found a vault that had all of their negatives and so this show is him screening their movies that have been cut down to a half hour in length. <laughs> so it's Kevin Pollock and Bob Amaral doing this kind of like rat-a-tat-tat vaudeville comedy in black and white. And like every episode is like a satire of a particular kind of buddy comedy. And like, and they, and they all have just like perfect titles. Like there's a, oh hell, like uh, there's a, the horror comedy, The Bride of Mumula. <laughs> where they, where uh, Michael McKeon plays uh, plays Mumula, a mad scientist who is part mummy and mostly Dracula. <laughs> There's a uh, Daffy Dicks where they play private investigators, and it's this whole like no- North by Northwest film noir thing, uh, which features the best place name. They have a rendezvous with the femme fatale. Uh, played by Catherine O'Hara in in a, in a place called a, a resort called the McGuff Inn. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, there's there's society saps where they try to marry rich heiresses. One of the absolute best ones, Oaf's Overboard, where it starts as like a globe trotting buddy comedy, but then they end up washing ashore on a a King Kong island, <laughs> and it turns into <laughs> a King Kong parody. Um. The best, I would say, as much as I love Bride of Mumula, if you're going to just watch an episode, watch The Vase Shop. Because it really does feel like a Laurel and Hardy short subject. And it's Morton, and, and they and there's a, like, there's a lot of variations of classic bits you will recognize from like uh, Abbott and Costello that they totally make their own. There's this amazing runner where they're trying to come up with a donut discount. But as they talk about the donut discount, they manage to, by giving discounts for large purchases of donuts, they manage to make a single donut free. <laughs> it's so good. 
and it's just great performances and it, and like if you've seen a lot of old comedy shorts you'll recognize all these classic comedic setups that they then sort of take in their own direction and you know rob reiner does does his intro and then the end of the show often has a a, a quote-unquote interview with one of the people who made the short possible and it's like one of the guests it's either it's either uh it's like one of the main main characters or one of the guests in old age makeup playing the actor who played the character. So there's this great multi-level metafiction and sort of prefiguring a lot of Troy McClure stuff. A lot of uh, episodes end with Rob Reiner saying, and t- tune in when we will be showing, we will be showing other classic Morton and Hayes, such as pardon my puss, the case of the cranky corpse, Mr. And Mrs. Murder, Dial N for Nincom Poops, and Morton and Hayes meet Sherlock Holmes at Charlie Chan's house. Uh, that's awesome. It is so delightful. And and some brave soul has uploaded the entirety of Morton and Hayes to YouTube. So please, watch Morton and Hayes. It's only six episodes. There is an unaired pilot that I don't think anyone has posted online. If I find the unaired pilot, I will be mentioning it in a future episode because this is well worth your time. Very good. And so is this, did this air like on Bravo or something initially? It seems no. like something that would be in cable. No, it was on CBS. What? Yeah. Well, keep in mind, like, like, uh, oh, it's Stephen King connection. It was produced by uh, Reiner's Castle Rock Entertainment. Well, there you go. Which was a production company that was originally founded so that Reiner could produce Stephen King adaptations. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so yeah, so I can only assume, you know, he had enough pull that he was able to get this on the air. So if you've ever had an inter- heard an interview with Kevin Pollack and Morton and Hayes gets mentioned, but you have no idea what they're talking about, they're talking about this show. There you go. Okay. So, um, do you have the sequel scene stuff, Thrasher, or no? I I looked. Yeah. Uh, all the sequel scenes were from later episodes. Okay, that's fine. We can skip that this time. So uh, next week, we'll be talking about episode two out of three of this uh, Mick Garris Shining miniseries. Um, be sure to, uh, we recently moved to anchor.fm, but just go to sequelcast2.com. That takes you to where all the episodes are. So that's fun. Uh, follow the show uh, on Twitter at sequelcast2. Leave a review on the Apple Podcast app for sequelcast2 and friends. We're also part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Uh, and you can check uh, my stuff out uh, on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Thrasher? Yep. Uh, well, again, my uh, my social media is still in flux, but you uh, can go to drivethroughrpg.com, search for uh, William Thrasher or William T. Thrasher. You'll find a lot of books uh, I've worked on. And if you really want to support me, uh, purchase one of the books that I have published through Skirmisher Publishing, LLC. I do get a, a royalty on those. Uh, also, our theme song is written and performed by Mark with the C. Check out his music at markwithac.com. And Alex. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Crab Nebula 1914 and um, also drop by my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project. Uh, recently, we've done a couple trailer commentaries, one for Apocalypse Now, which is pretty fun. And then also some, uh, I do a lot of uh, 16, 8 millimeter kind of found footage uh, hybrid stuff with uh, often featuring music scored by myself. Although I wouldn't really call it music, I'd say uh, experimental sounds, we'll call it there that. There you go. Very good. An audioscape. Exactly. So for sequel cast two, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. And this is Jalex. Same. And and he doesn't like to brag much about Nixon.